Okay, guys, I'm going to start announcements now. Okay, so first of all, good morning. Glad to see all you guys. Um, so our first announcement is about next Saturday. We're going to have service Saturday, um, 1030 at Ibera Elementary. So this just gives us like an opportunity to go around the neighborhood, go through their community and like just meet our neighbors, see if they're if they need prayer for anything or any help. Um, it's really fun. It's really cool. It's a way to start relationships with them. Um, so meet 1030 on Saturday. So this means we won't have church next Sunday. Um, but that leads into our next announcement that next Sunday instead at 1045, if you um, aren't in focus, if you're like a graduate, then you can come to this adult ministry one-on-one training. Um, so yeah, I think... That's all the announcements we have for today. Um, yeah, this is really short. I'm going to say a prayer real quick over the offering basket, and then we can get started. Um, dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here together today um, to get to worship you and just share in community, and I pray that you would be present here. But our biggest announcement is that next week we're going to trial run our new coffee maker. <laughs> which is a true pour over, and we'll do tea as well, and our coffee won't be so terrible. You'll be able to actually taste the uh, freshly roasted, organic, single estate, all that good stuff, beans that we have. Anyway, uh, so that's uh, definitely an encouragement to you to come to our one-on-one training. Remember magnets, how do they work? Uh, One-on-one, how's that done? That's how you're supposed to say that. And so we're going to be talking about uh, really three areas in particular home ministry, work ministry, uh, and what we'll call conversational and counseling ministry. And it'll be pretty interactive, and uh, we kind of fill out the blank, but we'll do a lot of case scenarios like you guys like, and uh, just be a chance for us to kind of figure out for adults what does one-on-one ministry look like apart from the college environment. So that's that, and then we'll test run our coffee. Uh, We'll say it will be a little bit cold next week, so dress warmly um, uh, for the going around in the neighborhood. Please make that if you can. It's 1045 or 11, wait, 1045 as normal at Rivera. It's Rivera, right? I, can, I don't ever know whether to say Riviera, but it's definitely Rivera. Riviera is a little too fancy for, for that area. Um, that was a knock, but no one did the ooh. Yeah, low income area. Yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, meet there. Please come out. That's huge. We've got lots and lots of houses to go and visit and apartments. And so when we have just a group of 20 people, um, we miss out opportunities. So come as many as you can. I know some of you work. You're out of town. That's fine. But don't just be lazy and sleeping on a Saturday. It'll at least be sunny and nice. Come out with us. Meet people. Pray for them. See what kind of needs you can fulfill. Uh, That would be really, really, really great. Okay. Uh, we're going to continue on with our series on uh, the Romans and American politics. Give an opportunity for you in a moment during our uh, singing time to share your theological statements that you wrote up. I've got a couple of you in my mind that I'm going to be calling on because you agreed to do it last week. So if you don't do it, you better figure out how to you know, put together something really quickly uh, during this sermon. Okay, uh, But yeah, we'll take an opportunity to do that in a second. You're going to have to suffer through listening to me a little bit more these next few weeks. I've had a tough time getting people to want to do this sermon series. I either get, I have no idea what I would say, or I'm underqualified to talk about that stuff. So I went a completely different direction and just decided not to ask any of our ministers from our other churches, because they're a bunch of boobs. Um, 
and to go back to my graduate education at UTD and ask some of the people who took some very similar programs uh, uh, as I did, as sociology, political science, but who are Christians and leading in Christian institutions. And so I went a total different direction with that, and I got all of the, the lessons filled up for the last month, month and a half. So that's pretty cool. We'll have the interim dean from Criswell College come and speak to you guys. He teaches political science. We'll have uh, a guy that went to uh, UTD Focus with us who uh, leads an organization called Faith in Texas, which is all about political activism. Uh, and uh, the list goes on. There's a couple more people that will add into that. So I'm very excited about hearing them. They uh, have already picked topics uh, that they think would be uh, kind of within their, uh, their scope and understanding, and so uh, you will hear from other people, I promise. Um, so, yeah, but it's also helpful at the beginning of these sermon series for me to speak a little bit, so, and Leslie, so that they have some background and can listen to them, so they can kind of know what we've done, what the foundation is for the sermon series, all of that good stuff. Alrighty, uh, I'm a little exhausted. It's tax season, uh, which means everybody wants to buy a trailer or have their car worked on. So I've, I'm working on about two or three hours straight uh, weeks of work, and so I'm just going to tell you that. I'm about to fall asleep uh, up here. So if I'm a little bit low energy today, it's not because I'm sad or mad or things are going bad. That's all rhyming. Um, <laughs> but because I'm really ready for a nap, and all I can think about is the nap that I'll get to take this afternoon. So uh, as long as I don't start napping now, I think we'll be good. So, um, we are going to dig in very specifically uh, to a political topic today, which is the criminal justice system. I will tell you there's a variety of things we could talk about. Uh, we could talk about judges and the whole idea of elected uh, judges. We could talk about recidivism and the prison system. We could talk about uh, violent offenders versus uh, uh, drug addicts and all of the things that come along with that. There's a variety of things that we could talk about in, in addressing this issue. However, uh, sort of what I'm going to talk about is what I know best, which is really kind of the basic process of the criminal justice system, particularly for those who are poor, all right? And uh, what I think will connect back to what we're reading in Romans 3 and Romans 4. And if you read that this week, it's pretty difficult, right? Particularly if you read it in the NIV, it, it basically says one thing and then goes and says the exact opposite like a few scriptures later. So I'm going to untangle that a little bit for you. But, but Romans 3 and 4 are pretty difficult. But I think if you'll apply what we've talked about the first two weeks, primarily about, you know, not being under the law, and about character building, okay, and God building character within us, which remember isn't just good deeds. That's a small part of character in my mind. That's more of a, a product of it than anything. But it's about reflecting the character of God. We used the tattoo example last week of having face tattoos. And everyone, I got a lot of feedback about tattoos <laughs> although it was completely unrelated to anything I talked about. They just wanted to talk about their tattoos, so that's, thanks for that. Uh, I tried not to come up with any illustrations today <clears throat> that would uh, somehow make me have to talk about some other random things on your body. Uh, so, great. So, this sermon topic is uh, called No One is Above the Law. And actually, I added a little subscript because why not? That's, remember, the best thing you can do if you want to be cool and smart. So no one is above the law, but plenty are below it. So what I mean by that is kind of two things. Number one is that we have a saying that no one is above the law, and I think when we talk about the kingdom of God, uh, we can absolutely say no one is above or below the law when it comes to God's kingdom. Otherwise, he's unjust. Now, this is a hard thing to talk about, and we won't 
today because there's so much Old Testament you'd have to bring into that. But in our law system in America and in many other you know, places, there absolutely are people who are above or below the law. Now, we don't talk near as much about people being below the law, which is odd. Um, we tend to think people are, what, right at the law, and then some people are above it. It's kind of like the irony of talking about overprivileged, and some people are overprivileged, but that would mean some people are underprivileged. They're not just privileged, they're underprivileged. It goes both ways. So in our criminal justice system, people very much are above and below the law. And if I want to communicate one thing to you today, it's that what Paul is talking about in Romans is that nobody is above or below the law. Both in laws that are are made in society, I mean, you know, in the systems themselves, sure, people can be above and below the law. In the church, in its institutions, people are definitely above the law, as again, we've seen Uh, at least play out in the Catholic Church, but in many, many other churches, uh, in kinds of churches. But in God's kingdom, according to the law of faith, nobody is above or below it. God shows no partiality when it comes to fulfilling the requirements of faith. And I hope that that will make sense to you as we talk more and more about this and be really good news to you, because, uh, you know... um, It's an important part of the gospel, understanding that there is no such thing as above and below uh, the law of faith. So, I remember being at an arraignment hearing not too long ago. Actually, I can't even remember if it was a bail hearing or an arraignment hearing. And watch as, uh, well, first of all, a whole bunch of Spanish speakers came through to hear their indictments. And the Spanish, uh, I was told, because I wouldn't really be able to know... Uh, was very poorly spoken, was broken, didn't make much sense to them. And so they were sort of funneled through these arraignments with very little knowledge of what was going on, all right? I remember one guy, white, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, he was probably middle of the road in terms of his economic status, basically just say, kind of blurted out when he, he had been given his charges because he didn't understand what his charges were when he was arrested, I had no idea that was against the law. To which the court reporter, who was already scoffing at him for taking up way too much time and asking questions, but the judge also scoffed and said, well, we have a saying around here, and that is not knowing the law isn't really an excuse. I remember thinking about that in that moment. On the one hand, thinking, well, that's kind of like what God says in, through Paul in Romans 1 about people having no excuse and understanding the sort of laws or the, you know, his invisible qualities. And then, on the other hand, I started to think, well, that's also kind of a little bit of a hypocritic, uh, hypocritical statement because, yeah, sure, maybe that's not an excuse, but it seems to be a pretty great defense if you have a good lawyer. Well, he just really wasn't intending to do any wrong. He just sort of did and didn't know what he was doing. And just the sort of hypocrisy of that statement that somehow him not knowing, not knowing these rules, these requirements, which can vary from state to state, county to county, city to city, and he was basically just sort of blown away that he had gotten these charges without really knowing that any of these things that had been sort of tacked on were against the law. So in our system, there are lots and lots of people above the law and below the law. Certainly money is a big part of that, which I'll explain in a moment. Minorities, although still it's kind of difficult 
to always know why are punished more severely than whites in our society, okay, for the same kinds of crimes. Now, is that intentional? Most would argue no. It has way more to do with the city and county environments that they're in and, uh, and the sort of uh, precedent of sentences that have come down uh, before them. But I've even sat in courtrooms and listened to people be uh, 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 below the law if they have certain job types. If you're a professor or have some sort of white-collar job, well, that person, you know, has got to get back to their work, has got to, you know, we really want to work with them. But if they're in between jobs or have sort of a day laborer type of job or a blue-collar job, the job almost isn't as important or mentioned every time they go in front of the uh, judge as if their job is really not, doesn't, shouldn't factor into their character as a person. So there are a lot of people who are certainly above and below the law in our society sort of as it works. But even beyond the legal law, cultural law is this way, all right? Even in cultural law, there are people who are above and below our cultural laws. For a long time, the church itself has been accused of treating sexual sin as some terrible, awful thing that when people commit, they're below the law. But greed, eh, not that important. And so we, in the 90s, had one major minister or CEO of a, a Christian organization be indicted and, and veritably slapped on the wrist for, for problems of taking money that caused tons and tons of harm. But oh, when you committed a sexual sin, it was just everything everybody could talk about. The list goes on. Something as simple as cussing, which I work around a whole lot of people that I'm pretty sure that their parents actually taught them their first words as curse words. I'm, I'm not convinced of it, but I'm pretty sure that was just what they were taught uh, because they, every other word, is some kind of curse word. My industry, the people who work around me, that's just what, that, what the environment is like. But we somehow look at cursing as sort of this terrible, awful thing, you know, culturally, but someone just being dishonest or, you know, not really giving you full information, well, you know, that's sort of part of how people, you know, present things. The list could go on, you may disagree with some of these examples, one of the ones I was thinking about was addiction versus no integrity. People who are addicts or who have addictions and feed their uh, addiction by stealing or lying or things like that versus people who don't have an addiction and, oh, well, they lied, they were dishonest, they're just not someone full of integrity. Well, they didn't break as big of a cultural law than someone who has an addiction. I mean, that's just, you know, they are terrible, terrible people. One of the other ones I thought about, and I'll, I won't go too long on this list because I think this will get convoluted, but is laziness versus selfishness. If someone's lazy and doesn't want to work or doesn't work, man, we are on their case all day long. Of course, what's difficult about that perspective is when they have a few job options, none of which look very exciting or interesting, it's a lot easier to be lazy and not want to have to do the work that uh, you know, most people who may be judging them never had to do, never had to step foot in. But on the other hand, we have people who do work, but are so selfish with their time and energy and uh, money that we somehow don't penalize that near as much. Well, they earned it so they can do whatever they want with it. And that's an interesting one that I've noticed. But the point is simply this, that in all of our systems, what's What's uh, just in the law, it's inherent in our law systems, are some people are above it and some people are below it. 
And that begs the question, how many people sort of like are in the middle and sort of get the law as it is? Well, it's not even a great question because it's hard to determine. What is normal? What is right? When some people seem to be, uh, you know, get slaps on the wrist uh, for doing major, major things and other people who do something that we would think of or consider as light in their situation uh, would be punished severely for it. But let me just say this before I move into these three points about the criminal justice system. In God's kingdom, character, character, reflecting the character of God, which at the basic level is about faith and trust in a person, okay, character, not convictions, and by this I don't mean convictions and sort of like your commitment to something or your passionately, I'm talking about convictions, like you've been punished or been accused of certain crimes, okay? Character, not convictions, determine our legal standing with God. And that is what Paul is talking about in Romans. The character that God has put on us, the face tattoo, to use that stupid example again, for all of you who hate it, is what determines our legal standing before God, not our convictions. How many times we've broken cultural law, legal law, uh, moral law, whatever it is. And this is both very good news for us, and also a little bit not great news if we like to think of ourselves as law-abiding citizens. This is one of the reasons that Christianity has often been accused of being basically a religion for poor people and people who make mistakes. Is because people are forgiven for egregious things and people say, well, nah, I've worked a lot harder than they did to be a good person. I should deserve this, this uh, you know, uh, grace or this gift that's been given to me. But in God's kingdom, character... And reflecting God's character, not any convictions that we've had, determines our legal standing with God. And this is a really, really radical idea. Because number one, it's not in any other religious systems. Number two, it really seems super unfair until you're the person who's got the record of convictions. Okay? And three, it's not really how we like to treat other people in general. Okay? According to the law. It's just not... You talk about law around most anybody, Democrat or Republican, and if you keep it at a theoretical level, people are going to have their ideas about, you know, um, being really fair and all that. But as soon as you bring it into their community or talk about some crime, everybody wants to be tough on crime. Nobody wants criminals around them, people breaking the law, whatever. And so this conversation, even having it, is incredibly difficult. But in the kingdom of God, it's character and not convictions. And again, character, I'm not talking about good deeds here, guys. We're talking about, remember what we ended on last week, understanding and knowing reality. That the power of God's impartiality is that he allows us to understand reality, and reality for most of us is that we could stand convicted in our behavior every day. Whether we've been caught, found guilty, punished, every day we stand convicted before God at least in not living up to what he has created us to live up to. And so it's about facing reality, and reality is definitely harsh apart from God's grace. But with it, uh, it's, it's something that we can absolutely face and deal with. And so character, reality, being able to, 
uh, uh, to figure that out in faith. Uh, so, all right, so verse 9. Uh, and I don't even have my Bible up here, which is awesome. Good job, me. Uh, Austin, can you get my sweet little red Bible in my uh, green knapsack bag in the kitchen? I probably said kitchen before you started walking this way, but I didn't. Failed to give you that detail. So someone want to read verse 9 in uh, chapter 3? Oh, sorry, uh, we're going to use the Bible this morning. So you might want to open it up uh, as we're, uh, we're talking. Says the person who forgot to bring his up here. Okay, so in this most vexing and strange passage in Romans 3, where if you read it in the NIV, it literally says, what advantage is there? Paul says every, and then a few verses later on in 9, what advantage is there? None. And you're like, what? (laughs) Is this how Romans is going to read the entire time? Paul says one thing and then just completely contradicts himself in a few, you know, uh, words later. Well, here is one of those funny little preacher tricks you can do, and you can just tell people, well, it doesn't make sense, so read it in the Greek. <laughs> but actually, seriously, anytime you have what seems like a surface-level contradictory statement, it's always better to go and read it in a more literal version of the Bible in terms of translation. And remember, we've told you about two in here, NASB and NRSV, and you should know those two. New American Standard Bible, and the New Revised Standard Version. Because it's helpful to at least go back and see in this Greek translation, is this really what it seems like? And uh, Josh introduced me to one that I don't know a whole lot about, but I have been referencing it lately. It's called the Contemporary English Bible. Is that right, Josh? C-E-B? Oh, well, I've been referencing the wrong one. No wonder I hated it. Uh, Well, that's good. (laughs) didn't seem very literal in my mind, so that's one of my problems with it. Anyway, so CSB, right? Christian Standard Bible. Okay, great. Well, now I I don't think so poorly of you. Um, Christian Standard Bible, there's another one if you want to go and read it. But what you'll read, yeah, Tyrus. Okay, so is what you repeat, what is it? CSB as in boy. Most of you probably don't do this. But I do this all the time. Um, you know, if you're reading letters or whatever, and you try to use the like uh, civ- the civil or the military like code words for them, y'all do that every now and again. It's so hard to do consistently unless you really memorize them, and then you just start making up crazy words that people are like, "What did you just say? What was that word?" And, uh, and it, okay, sorry, that's such a side point. I, it just came to my mind. I used the word giraffe the other day, and it was really tough for him to understand what I was saying. Um, I was like, giraffe, golf, I mean, there's so many other things you could use, Uh, not giraffe, Um, but that's what I did. Yeah, or you use funny people's names, maybe like only you know. Okay, anyway, sorry. Um, Not clear, not clear communication, that's a reference for another time. So what you do see, though, in quick, because I'm not going to go into this too, too much, but in the first part, he's asking, well, what advantage do you have as a Jew? And Paul's response is, you've been given the law. You understand the law more than anyone else because I've given you the law that reflects my character. And so then in the second part, and this is where things get tricky, uh, it basically uh, says, well, are we better off or worse off? And it can be translated both ways. Don't ask me. I didn't come up with Greek, okay? 
What, am I worse off or better off? That's the question that's following up there. And Paul's saying, no, you're not worse off or better off because just because you know the law, remember, that doesn't mean that you actually follow it. So you have a greater responsibility here, absolutely, but you're no worse off or better off because everybody has sinned. In essence, what he's saying in verse 9 is no one is above the law. It doesn't matter how much you know it. It doesn't matter how much you've experienced it. It doesn't matter how much you followed it. You are not above or below God's law. There is no following it enough to be in a right standing with God. And if you want that, you're in the wrong religion. There are other religions uh, and even monotheistic religions where you can try to be good enough to, to earn God's favor. You've just happened to be in the wrong one. So you ought to switch up, all right? Because this one's not about that. No matter how many good things you've done, no matter how few convictions you have on your record, it's not enough. And that's in verse 9 what Paul is saying to these Jewish people who decided that they were above the law because somehow they had it. And he's going to tell them, no, if anything, uh, you know, you should understand that you should be in a standing that you, you should uh, hold yourself to an even higher standard. Okay? Well, that's one thing. But he's also talking to Gentiles who in verse 7 and 8 come up with this really creative And if I'm going to give you one image or illustration that would most reflect not being in touch with reality, it's verses 7 and 8. Okay, wait a second. So if I do bad stuff, then that actually means the more bad I do, the more good God seems. So really, we ought to just do some bad stuff here. It like basically is the plot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Not that I'm recommending you watch that. But it's a play on the idea that, you know what, let's just throw rules out and do everything bad we can do, okay? That, uh, so many TV shows now uh, in our post-modern uh, you know, um, kind of way of looking at the world, the truth is relative, let's just basically make fun of that there are no rules and it's really funny and it does come across really funny and the people are terrible to each other. And of course, you know, if there's any reason or rhyme to it, it's, well, we'll show how terrible people really are to exaggerate how terrible they are so we'll all know how to be better and how to be good. There's an irony in all of that, and of course it's, it's hypocritical, but that's uh, exactly the argument that many of these Gentile people are making. Whoa, great. I remember, um, well, there's two il- illustrations here. It's the whole idea of someone doing wrong uh, and being really terrible at something. I think I see this most in dating. Well, I really messed up a lot, so now I'm like becoming like a really good advice counselor, because I can tell you all the ways, you know, that you ought to do stuff. No, you can't actually tell us all the ways you, you can do stuff. You can only tell us ways that you do wrong. You're a counselor at how to do wrong, okay? And if you need that or want that, and that's where you want to go, great. But that's all you got. The opposite of wrong isn't you now know right, it's you just know even more ways of doing wrong, all right? And so that's not helpful. But I have another one that I remembered that... Uh, I think is a better illustration of what Paul is saying here. When I was in India, and we were in a, this is uh, almost 15 years ago, in a leprosy uh, village that we were staying in for a time uh, to do painting and healing. Healing. <laughs> I'm not Pentecostal, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, not that I don't think we could have, because I absolutely do. I just haven't been the possessor of that gift, Okay. <laughs> But there is definitely healing going on in these areas, and it's very spiritual healing, and so I'm not making fun of that. I know some of you are uncomfortable with that, but no, just let's, let's go a little lower than that and bandaging wounds. Oh, there we go. Uh, that's a little better. 
Um, I remember saying there was this one sign on one giant wall, and it was way too tiny for it to be on this wall, but it basically said something, and I can't remember it well enough, although it has stuck in my mind, that, you know, bad friends come along the way, and you can just be bitter about it, or you can recognize that with every bad friendship, you gain some better understanding of what it actually means to have a good friend, all right? And I think Paul's using the exact same illustration here. Guys, we don't need to go out and sin. We're convicted every day of the sin we already have. But in God's kingdom, we can look at sin as a bitter, we can ignore it in its reality, we can continue on doing it and make it less of a big deal, or we can recognize just how good God is in our sin, not first because he fixes it, but because he doesn't do it, and he calls us and empowers us to a higher standard where we don't have to be locked into it anymore, but also, too, that he can make good out of those things that uh, are the worst in our lives. Remember, it's the reality last time. Power of impartiality is that God can make good out of the worst situations, and we don't have to ignore them, pretend they're not there, compare ourselves to other people. We can face them, face the consequences, knowing God will bring good out of the worst of situations whether they made mistakes, things bad that have happened to us, whatever. Is that immediate? Of course not. It's lifelong. That's the whole big word of sanctification that, you know, is a silly word, I think. But uh, that's what it is. So he's balancing these, these two ways of looking at this out. That in our sin, if we recognize it for what it is and understand it, only then can we really appreciate God's grace and what he's actually given us. And so any intentional uh, commitment on our part to ignore sin, to not pay attention to it, to gloss over it, to not deal with it, is simply a missed opportunity to understand how good God is. And so sin shouldn't be this terrible, awful thing that we only talk about every now and again and only think about every month or two when someone brings up a thing about confession— It's something that if we're willing and trusting God will always bring out his glory in our lives. And we don't need to go out and do more. We've got plenty of it to just unearth and discover right around us and in our own hearts. There's no intentional doing that uh, that will bring that out. All right, I've belabored that point enough. Let's go on. So I've got three points here. I'm going to move through them somewhat quickly. If you have questions about them, you're probably going to have to ask me later. Here are my three biggest problems with our criminal justice system and how I think In God's justice system, it's different. Okay? Number one, no info. It's the constant principal-agent problem in political science or philosophy. You've got some people with a lot of information, and it's up to them whether or not they want to give you that information. And in particular here, we're talking about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, which basically tell you your rights if convicted of something, your ability to not incriminate yourself, and your ability to have a fair trial. Most folks, particularly their first time, but sometimes even their second time, have no information about their convictions, about how to navigate the process. They are intentionally, at worst, indifferently, at best, kept in the dark. Okay? Because that's how the system works works. And guys, when I talk about our criminal justice system, I want to be really clear that I don't think we have the worst criminal justice system, even though we imprison more than anybody else does. We're somewhere in the middle, probably. There are plenty of criminal justice systems I would rather not be 
in than the American system. So let's be real clear about that. We probably have one of the uh, best in the world, but middle ground in terms of industrialized nations, all right? But this is still an inherent problem, I would say, in, in almost any criminal justice system. How do you get this information? In the midst of me committing a crime and all that goes with that, someone reading my Miranda rights, which I've heard a million times and never been sat down and actually told, is like me citing a memory verse to you when you're incredibly stressed out and you remembering that and somehow being fixed by it. The Miranda rights aren't enough, okay? Not to mention the fact that sometimes they're not even read or, you know, in their entirety or people can deny actually hearing them. But most folks, guys, do not have enough information about the criminal justice system until they get caught up in it. And even then, it's in arrears. I would have done that differently. I didn't have to speak to that police officer. That police officer straight up lied to me to get me to talk, and I didn't have to talk about any of that. But I thought I did. He was so nice to me at the beginning. (laughs) So no information. Not to mention the fact that if you get caught in county jail, there are no materials... There's TV, which is intentionally not on any kind of program that will help you, I would say. No information. There's no materials. You may be locked up in a cell for 23-1, which is 23 hours a day with some other crazy person, uh, and one hour let out a day. There's no information. Some people don't get their bail or or indictment sheets till three or four days after they get put in. Even after they get a a hearing, the arraignment that I was talking about a few moments ago, he had not even got his correct indictment papers. So when he got in there, he thought he was looking at one felony, was looking at four, and no idea. Completely a shock to him. Lawyers aren't in there during the indictment process, which is a completely different uh, topic we won't talk about, or the bail hearing. It's just a system where people don't have much information and don't have access to information. There was an interesting study done not too long ago about how to use the phone and how few county people admitted didn't even know and would not be trained on how to use the phone. They had to rely on other inmates to even figure out how to make a phone call. And the average first phone call got into the second day just because people didn't have any idea how to use a phone. Okay? So the information is... Not there, they're left in the dark, and you can imagine there's fear and anxiety, and everyone sort of turns uh, to each other to try to kind of get help, and that legal advice may be like that guy who dated poorly and has a lot of poor advice for you, uh, but not usually a lot of great advice. Guys, that couldn't be more opposite of the kingdom of God. Jesus has gone out of his way to give us information about sin and the law, and the, the word is a testimony to that. The spirit inside of us, which uh, Gordon Fee calls a spotlight ministry on Jesus and on God, goes out of his way to inform us of what we've been charged with, of what our le- legal repercussions are, of what path we should take out of his way. The kingdom of God is not about leaving us in the dark and giving us as little information as possible so that the system works against us. It's just not. We get every chance through community people, through the word itself, through the spirits working, telling us, informing us of what God's charge is against us and how 
we can be rehabilitated and prosper as a result of this and learn from it, not just stand accused and condemned and ruined. Second problem is pressuring to plea. This is called the pay-to-play among insiders in the criminal justice system. Guys, 96% of criminal convictions will end up in a plea deal. I want you to think about that for a moment. 96 will end up in a plea deal. What a plea deal is, is your decision to avoid a trial of any kind. Whether it's a trial of your peers, whether it's called what's a bench trial, which is a judge deciding your fate, less than 5% of people convicted in the United States will ever be in a courtroom with a, a trial, with a jury. It should make your love of, of all of these criminal justice shows about DNA testing and courtroom battles, that they're, that's a, not our criminal justice system. You're watching a fantasy take place. Most people plead. Now, we would never want a system where everyone goes in front of a jury trial. We would, everybody in the, our society would have to be working as a judge, and none of us would work because we'd all be on tr- trials all the time. But I don't think 5% is a very good number. I'm not really for sure what would be. To be completely honest, all I can tell you is the pressure to plea is very, very, very intense. What do I mean by plea? Well, a plea is simply a trade-off. I'm willing to accept this from the prosecution if you're willing to give me this, and I can know going into that courtroom this morning, here's what my sentence is going to be, or at least what the range is going to be. Here's what I'm looking for in terms of what I've been convicted of, you know, so forth and so on. It's a negotiation that works basically like Craigslist. Here's what I'm willing to pay. You give me your offer. I'll come back with mine. We'll, you know, go about uh, our day and be good to go. Grant. Yes, but you can also say no contest, right? So, but you can't plead not guilty, uh, and then you know, well, actually, there you can plead not guilty sometimes, but. Let's just say, if it's not an overt, yes, I'm guilty, it's a pretty sure you did something wrong. But that's the least of their worries, usually, uh, when it comes to plea deals. So let me talk about plea deals for, uh, for a moment. Number one, one of the most important aspects of plea deals is whether you're out of jail or in jail when you're looking to get a plea. If you're in jail, you want to do what with your case? expedite it. If you're out of jail, you got all the time in the world. So from the get-go, it's a pay-to-play system. If I can pay $5,000 to get out of jail, take time to find a lawyer, vet public defenders, do all the things I need to do to make sure I've got the best legal defense, well, I'm already above the law compared to someone who's stuck in county with no materials, No ability to talk to a lawyer except for if they get a public defender or except if they find a lawyer who they probably aren't going to be able to hire a defense lawyer if they can't even get out of jail, who they may see once every other week for 10 minutes. Okay? So the pay-to-play thing is big. California is the only state that I know of right now that's that's, uh, considering doing away with that. The next system that comes up sounds even scarier in some ways, but basically it's a random computer generated whether you get bail or not, what the amount is based on non-violent or violent. That sounds even worse, Uh, but uh, California, you know, well, 
let's just say California and Texas both uh, have their history with criminal justice systems, should tell you that neither Republicans or Democrats are any better at figuring out the criminal justice system on most days. So, pay to play. You get money to bail out, you've got money probably to buy a defense lawyer, and that's a whole other topic we'll talk about in this third one. But guys, this is absolutely oppression of the poor. Our pay-to-play bail system is something akin to what was going on with debtors' prisons in a lot of uh, uh, the Israelite towns uh, and places in northern and, and southern Israel that God spoke directly against, okay, in his address to the nation. Always at the top of his mind. You're oppressing people through your wealth. You got money, all of a sudden you become above the law, you don't, you're below it. This is not at all how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. Not even close. The other problem with the whole uh, plea agreement, let's say you've got a public defender that's spending 10 minutes with you who says, well, you know, you can go this far, and if you know much about the criminal justice system, there's an in, infinite number of hearings that you can do before your final hearing. There's prelims, and there's the, um, uh, I can't remember, the discovery, and then after the prelims, there's like a, a, basically like a mock trial that you can go through. There's a, just a lot of stuff in the interim. And if you've got a, 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 a public defender, which we'll talk about in a moment, who's telling you, listen, you're going to be in jail for longer until all this gets figured out, if you wait too long and you go too far before accepting the plea deal, that judge, particularly if you go to jury, is going to say, man, this guy's wasting my time. He's going to take up three weeks of my schedule that I could be prosecuting maybe 100 cases in. He's going to, if you lose, give you an even harsher penalty than if you would just accept the plea deal today. It's the kind of classic catch-22 conundrum. You know, uh, decent deal today, possibly worse deal later on. And that's what you see in a lot of these pressuring to plea kind of, uh, of agreements. You've got some angry judge that wants to rush you through the system that's already decided you're pretty much guilty, uh, and therefore, do you really want to take your chances with the jury of your peers? Which has a lot to do, honestly, and sometimes what city you got caught in. Because depending on your color or your, your, your job persuasion, whatever, there's a lot of things that may uh, get you sympathy from a jury, and then there's a whole lot of things that will get you the opposite. And so knowing that uh, is, uh, is a big part of it. Guys, we serve a God who is lovingly patient and impartial. He is the opposite of the angry judge waiting to punish us as we hold out to make a decision on where we're at with this. That is just not him. It's so much of this, my problem with these evangelism tactics that are go to hell or get saved today is because it reflects the character of a God who's like a bad judge in your local district. It's not loving, he's not patient. He's not waiting for you to make a commitment. He just wants you to hurry up and make a plea deal for heaven. I'm not sure that's how God really is. Let's hope not. Now, is there an urgency to it? Sure, of course. But is it the biggest decision of your life to make to follow God? Yeah, and should there be a counting process with that? Absolutely. Jesus himself talks about it. 
And so while sometimes that evangelism can plant a seed and can do some great stuff, I'm not so sure long-term we're presenting a very accurate picture of our God who is impartial and lovingly patient. He directs his anger at the injustice and the people who it's impacted, not at the person for no reason. Okay? That anger is directed at the injustice that person uh, caused not the inconvenience of having to deal with it. Nor is he indifferent. Thank God that God is not indifferent to sin and uh, breaking the law. If God was really indifferent to breaking the law, we would have no hope for justice. But God is a God of justice, and that's actually a good thing for us, even if we find ourselves, uh, uh, you know, kind of the the recipient of his wrath there. I I used a terrible example for this, but I'm just going to mention it because it'll be an aside, and I'll be able to give you financial advice, and I always really like that. It's light, light. Financial advice is really light. For those of you who do want to do any kind of investment planning uh, and want to hire a financial advisor, probably one of the first questions that you ought to consider is whether you want a fiduciary or someone who's just uh, uh, abiding by the standards of suitability. It's a big, 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 big thing and big difference. And for those of you who don't know, fiduciary, uh, in accordance with the 1942 Fiduciary Act, I can't remember the full name, they have to do what's in your best interest, have to invest your money before they invest theirs, aren't allowed to charge certain fees, and it really is in your best interest. And they have to abide by that. Now, do they or not? That's a whole other question. Most financial advisors simply uh, abide by a uh, principle called suitability, which just means they have to give you an investment that's suitable to you. Now, that's very, very legally unclear, and what that means most of the time is the investment firm that they're working for, even though it has higher fees, that's the one suitable to you because of all of the soft factors they've decided in their mind are suitable to your financial portfolio. This, in my mind, is exactly like how a lot of the legal system works in terms of our judges. It's not about your best interest in mind. You've committed a crime, so for some reason, or potentially committed a crime, so who cares about your best interest anymore? We'll just add in a whole lot of potential problems for society and then justify it by, you know, hanging the one to protect the the many. They're not fiduciaries. They do what's suitable, what's in minimum requirement of the law, which is really a lot of what we talked about already with the first one. The third one, and the one that's probably most common uh, to you in terms of your understanding maybe of the legal uh, justice system is the uh, public defenders, right? And these public defenders are, okay. Uh, These public defenders are uh, simply people who work usually for the city, county, or state, and have been assigned to people who have said, I don't have enough money to afford a lawyer, right? Now, their pay ranges from $60,000, $70,000 on the low end to $125,000 in Denton, even though the public defenders want even more money in Denton, uh, and, or at least want the state to kind of provide them more money, which sounds maybe unreasonable, but, you know, $100,000, probably kind of on the lower end and threshold of what lawyers make in general. But the bigger problem isn't so much that they make less. The two biggest problems are, one, they work for the city county, and state governments. Uh, the last time I checked, and I'm not for sure if it's still there, 
But I think we had this little interesting clause in our basic constitution about separating powers. <laughs> the legislative system should probably be separate from the judiciary, should be separate from the executive. A paid city public defender looks a whole lot like going across those lines of judiciary and execution. Uh, now, it's not as bad in some states where your police officers are literally your prosecutors. But man, it sure in functionality and practicality it looks very interesting when a public defender has to work cases right in front of a judge that they always work in their courtroom and who eventually decides how good of a job they're doing in the very city they're working for. It's tricky. So even just that, being a defense lawyer that has no connection or association with the city government versus a public defender who is paid by the city government is a little bit like taxing you know, rich properties to give to rich schools, in my mind, in terms of its uh, you know, brilliance. How we ought to do it better? Well, remember most of us up here who have, you know, and espouse liberal ideas don't ever tell anyone how to do it better. We just criticize everyone for doing it wrong. We just want change. Um, but it's interesting. But even bigger than that, guys, is public defenders often have four to six times the caseload that a, a private defense lawyer has. And that's where the problem really comes in. If you're a private defense lawyer, you can obviously charge more. People say, well, why do they charge so much? Well, at least part of the reason, if they're a decent lawyer, so they can spend more time with their client. Public defender, when they have five or six times the caseload, in their best, at their best, can only have so many substantive, quality conversations. And one of the biggest problems is simply remembering the detail of the person's case and not getting them mixed up and accidentally doing the wrong thing. And so what pressure is it on public defenders but is to accept the first plea that comes your way? And their intuition, they say, yeah, that's about the same for what I can normally get my clients. So accept it. Now, a defense lawyer is often just as in with the judge, but in ways that are very different. Most public defense lawyers were prosecutors at one point. Most public defenders are retirees from the prosecution system. They're older. The different, it's a different job. And, and we can say all day long, well, public defenders sometimes do their jobs because they want to. That could be true. But it could also be that they couldn't make their business as a private defense lawyer. And so in some ways, if they wanted to practice law, this is where they fit best. So the system of it. It, it works against uh, a lot of folks who, uh, who are poor and can't afford a lawyer. Many of you don't know this, and I'll... Might as well uh, be a little honest about uh, my own past and history here. I was actually kicked out of UTD, uh, the PhD program, expelled, okay? And what happened was, um, that was a long story, but the basics of it was one of the uh, students in focus who was in that class, which was a very strange class because it had PhD students and fast-track undergrads. Which fast-track undergrad, if you know, it's basically as a senior you can take a grad class. Now, why they put PhD students and undergrads in the same class, don't ask me. But you can imagine, for the, the class for me was very easy, the class for him was very difficult. At one point he asked me to help him with a paper. I, in my ignorance and stupidity, rather than helped him, because it was getting close to the deadline, 
simply shared with him a rough draft of my paper to look at to get an idea of uh, what, what the uh, paper assignment was for. What's interesting about that is all semester we were allowed to work together. I pretty much carried these two focus, there was two of them actually, uh, focus students in my group work, which we all know how that works. So it didn't really cross my mind that we wouldn't be able to share our final papers. In fact, he even made the statement, if you work together, you'll sink together or swim together, and I thought that was a, you know, fine. Anyway, instead of actually writing his own paper, like this one of the focus students did, he just changed the words he didn't understand in some of the sentences and turned my paper in. So, of course, we were accused of collusion. He was, uh, I mean, just repentant the whole time, was telling them I didn't, we didn't collude. I simply copied his paper, and please don't penalize him. Well, I got expelled. He got an F. Don't ask me how. Higher standards for PhD students. But one of the most discouraging things about this process, which I was just going to quit school and not even worry about it, but Ronnie and Brandon and one of our lawyers at the church at the time who was an elder was like, no, you need to fight this. Um, during my little uh, hearing, my appeal hearing, <laughs> there was an arbiter, and this arbiter was supposed to act as a judge, and this was just kind of randomly picked from a faculty member. Now, during this hearing, the prosecutor, who was a, a JD, a, a lawyer from the school, was presenting evidence in the case against me, and not only was I not allowed to submit documents that were online on their own website because I hadn't followed through the proper legal format, which was 48 hours in advance and all these other things, literally documents from their website, the arbiter was looking almost always at the lawyer from the school, asking her how to proceed. Now, I want you to imagine being in a courtroom where the lawyer is informing the judge on how to do the right thing. Let's just say it's a kangaroo court, and I had no chance from the beginning. So uh, I was expelled. Turns out that the president uh, of the university reversed the decision in another appeal that was my last-ditch effort, which wasn't a very common practice, and in God and all of his wisdom used that experience to completely turn around the academic dishonesty program at UTD, from putting students on the board, from videotaping things, the dean of the students retired very quickly after that experience, um, and God used it. But the point of the matter was simply that this was a kangaroo court, and it looked a lot like what I've seen in a lot of courtrooms today. Here's a little side note, which is the most funny part of the entire experience. Not one person in the history of UTD has ever won an academic dishonesty case. Not ever, up to my point. Now think about that for a moment. What courtroom is 100% accurate? You talk about exoneration, innocence, that kind of thing on a very, very small and micro level, not one person in our research had ever won before. That is the definition of a kangaroo court, and unfortunately, that is what we often have in our prosecutor-judge prosecutor relationships, and a lot of times when you look in a courtroom. They defer to the prosecution to determine exactly how to move forward, what to do. It's a process, guys. It has nothing to do with people in the process. You know, that's a good question. So the next point that I have here, <laughs> I don't know the etymology of it. I really don't. I just know what it actually means is that you don't have any, uh, I think, let, let me just guess. I'm going to make up an etymology here. Nobody knows. Yeah, I don't know the etymology. Someone could look into that. It'd probably be really interesting. I know you have it, but I would want to make up my own definition first. Let's say you've got a courtroom with a bunch of kangaroos who are going to decide your fate, and they just all punch and kick each other the entire time, and there's no justice for you. 
Close? Well, maybe maybe it came from there. Did it come from there, or did they just reuse it, or? Mm, okay. Right. Nailed it. I'll, I'll dig it. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. So who knows what the etymology still is, because these are just definitions, but, or images from pop culture. I mean, I don't know. Look up the etymology. Uh, do you need me to explain etymology to you? Okay, etymology is the sort of root or origin of certain phrases or words. Phrases? Okay, phrases are like a connection of words drawn together uh, in a coherent way. All right, so um, anyway, uh, it's my lovely wife, for those of you who don't know. Get a chance to pick on every now and again. It's really great. Um, so, yeah, uh, this, this kind of kangaroo court... Uh, happened, and uh, unfortunately, we have uh, that very consistently, guys. But again, it's about the process and not the people. In one of the most compelling books that I never was able to finish, uh, <laughs> called The Banality of Evil, which I've mentioned multiple times for, uh, here, uh, was about the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was this kind of guy in charge of the Nazi regime of uh, all of the um, internment camps and, hol- and uh, why can't I remember what they're called? concentration camps, who, what was most remarkable about her writing about him was he was an ordinary guy, who was a decent guy, and somehow he could run one of the world's most terrible atrocities as a good guy. Well, in my mind, that's all about the process, and, and, and being caught up in a process where indifference and, uh, you know, good deeds go completely, uh, you know, they're just not there because you're following the process. And it's not ultimately about people. Guys, that is, again, so not how the Spirit of God works within us. There is no process to this. One of the things that people hate so much about trying to study Jesus' ministry uh, uh, strategies is it's so much more difficult than just studying Paul's ministry strategies. Paul in his humanness has a process for ministry often. What process did Jesus use? Try to write about that. It's hard. Because it was about the Spirit leading him to do what's best, and sometimes that was different in one situation and scenario than another. Because he put people first and not some process or some you know, customs or rituals uh, before he put people first. He's a counselor on our behalf. And more than that, he gives us our, the community that's on our behalf. So many of these folks in and out of the prison system have very few people to help them. All of a sudden, they have to rely on their family who they may not have good terms with and who probably know even less than them now, and they just don't have people who will work with them. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, jails are letting you have one-on-one counseling with a group or a guard uh, so that you can figure out, you know, Uh, your legal system. And yet, that's what we've got in the kingdom of God. We get one-on-one mentorship on how to do this whole thing in the kingdom of God. And that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty amazing. We have access and availability. There was another study along with those phone conversation studies about access and availability. 
to, to um, private lawyers versus public defenders, one of the easiest and biggest things, guys, was just that people could text their lawyer when they had a private defense lawyer. A question, a comment, call them immediately. You call a lawyer on the phone from jail if they're, they haven't saved your number, which is really not your number, it's the jail you're coming from, and if they've got 10 clients in that jail, you think they're just going to answer and be like, all right, five of these I hate, five of them are okay, let's just, you know, see which one I'm going to answer the phone for. The access and availability that people have to their lawyers is a huge part of this deal. And guys, think about the access and availability we have in the kingdom of God to God. He does, doesn't set us in motion and expects we're going to figure stuff out, and then on judgment day when we face him, hey, how did it go? You figure it out? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, not knowing the law is not an excuse. That's our saying in this courtroom. It's not how he treats us. We have access, and we have availability to him and to the people around us. Uh, that's all I got. So uh, quick questions or comments before we do... Uh, uh, our, uh, our break. This is the first time that we've done this sort of more specifically uh, political kind of, uh, of conversation. So we'll, we'll be uh, tweaking this a little bit as we go uh, to make sure that we're not just up here talking about uh, various political issues without really addressing our major issue, which is talking about how God is uh, and how we ought to think about these political issues from the perspective of uh, the God that we know. Tony. So what Paul is talking about, actually, in Romans is something he doesn't talk about much throughout the rest of Scripture. He uses a word that if you really want to get technical and theological, you can read N.T. Wright's book called Justification. Uh, I wouldn't, but hey, you, you could. Um, and it's all about this very legal language he's using in Rome that's in a custom with their legal language to talk about how God sees us in terms of a legal sense. And actually, this is really very helpful if you've been through the criminal justice system or have someone close to you. To be seen as innocent, even though you're guilty, is crazy. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's one thing to be seen innocent until proven guilty. And it's another, which is what more, most courtrooms are, are guilty until you've been proven innocent. God sees us as innocent while being proven guilty. And that legal term to Paul is unreal and unbelievable. It makes no sense in a worldly sense. Nobody does that. Nobody watches someone go in a courtroom and thinks, yeah, they're guilty. I'm going to see them as innocent. <laughs> you would be an idiot. I mean, you'd be an idiot. And yet that's how God treats us. And so in a legal sense, it, it's just wacky. It doesn't really make much sense. And that's what Paul's talking about all through Romans, is that you're not justified because of the law. You're justified. In fact, he uses the example in four Someone who does a job gets their wages and expects them. Someone who doesn't work and gets wages or gets what they're uh, you know, expecting in faith, that's the, he's using the same kind of illustration there, is that you know, if we're working based on the law, we expect to be convicted or get away with it or whatever. But in uh, the kingdom, we're freely able to be both seen as innocent but proven guilty. Another question, follow-up question? Okay, great. Well, no, it's, it's his, well, what are you going to really get into this right now? I mean, this is what we're really talking about now? Literally, people have been debating this exact topic and how this works for, you know, ever since Christianity. Uh, but in a way of, of uh, steering away from very uh, consistent theological arguments and, and debates, God sees us innocent through our faith and trust in him. 
It has nothing. Character is, is not just good deeds and not works. Works come out of character because they're one and the same. But it, it's, it's our, our character in that we are faithful towards God. He's, been, he's marked us. We believe him. We trust him. Uh, and our faith lays not in our ability to do good things. But yeah, okay. There you go. Without, the, yeah, okay. One more. Justin. I think one of the greatest alternatives would be to have some, at least at the bare minimum, materials in a county jail, both in waiting rooms uh, and in the actual uh, cell areas themselves, to have something that people can reference and look at on their own. I mean, again, county jails do not have these materials, and they do not have access to these materials. I mean, it'd be better if like, some decently educated person, which it doesn't have to be much to understand the basics of the legal system, could come in once a day into each pod and have a group session for 30 or 45 minutes and ask legal questions. I mean, I know that's asking a lot. I mean, you know, because we've got to finance that. Shoot, maybe a guard could give a little information. Who knows? But uh, in my mind, that would be really helpful because the worst time to do it uh, is uh, in the beginning process. It has to be after people have kind of settled down, understood, and can actually understand their fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment rights, which very few people do. I mean, most people can't even tell you what fourth, fifth, and sixth amendments rights were, right? Uh, so, like, can you? No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't until yesterday. I was like, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Right, which one of those? Okay. Um, any others before we break for communion? Yes? No? Maybe so? No? Great. Lord God, thank you for seeing us as innocent, even though we know we've been proven guilty. There was nothing um, more humbling also more disturbing, uh, more challenging uh, than knowing that that's how you see us. Um, what we celebrate now is the fullest uh, representation and reflection of that um, in what Jesus did for us. That knowing we were guilty, knowing uh, that we would continue to stay guilty, uh, he traded his innocence to make us and see us as innocent. That's just amazing. Lord, we uh, celebrate you now and uh, hope us to, uh, some of us who maybe have access or uh, have opportunity um, to do something, whether it's to have a conversation, uh, whether it's to um, comfort someone, um, perhaps vote on something, whatever it is, uh, to try uh, our best to make our criminal justice system more in line with your kingdom. And when and if that fails, to more importantly uh, be in accordance with your kingdom justice in the way we treat people and in what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.